James, welcome to the Profile Show. <laughs> Hi, great to talk to you. I just made that up. By the way, there is no Profile Show. It's good. It's a great name. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so what is the first thing you did after you opened up your dashboard and you saw 1 million subscribers on your email list? <laughs> um, I guess I took a screenshot. I guess that was the first thing I did. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, you know, the thing about getting to a million subscribers is that it took me eight years. So I knew it was coming. You know what I mean? Like I could, I could map it out pretty close. I, I didn't know exactly to the day, but I mean, like I knew the week we were going to hit it even, you know, a month or two in advance because it's pretty consistent how many people join each day. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I was ready for it. Um, it feels great. It's obviously very, um, surprising in some sense that like anyone is listening to what you're saying, you know, like it's, it's sort of like a minor miracle that anybody cares. Um, and then, uh, it also is obviously gratifying because eight years is a long time to work on something and it's good to feel like it paid off and has been worth it. Um, it's fun to know that you're like building a community of people, uh, who are kind of interested in the same thing and like excited about the same sort of thing. So that's cool. And, um, yeah, I mean, mostly I'm just really grateful that people are finding the ideas useful enough to share some of their time. I mean, this is something I said at the end of Atomic Habits as well, which is that, you know, life is short and time is precious. And so the fact that you're sharing any of it with me, whether it's reading a weekly email or reading the book or whatever, is um, a sacrifice or a trade off a choice on your part. And so I feel like my responsibility is to make sure that I share ideas that are useful enough and valuable enough and helpful enough to make that trade off worth it. And, uh, I think getting to a million subscribers is evidence that I've been able to do that so far. Um, obviously that doesn't guarantee anything for the future. So it's kind of like, you know, back to work and, uh, try to create something great for next week. Amazing. So how does it feel looking at that number, knowing that in 2012, you almost didn't start a newsletter or a blog? Yeah, I'm really glad that I gave it a shot. There are a lot of little examples of things like that, you know, whether it's like reaching out to somebody new or just introducing yourself or sharing your work with someone. I had a um, a big account on Instagram, share my book today. They've got over a million followers. And the way that all started is I sent them a message. It was like, hey, um, you know, I think you might be interested in this based on some of the other stuff you've been talking about. And I just signed a copy and sent it off to him and he liked it. And so he shared it. And so like, that's a small microcosm of that same kind of like, let me just give it a shot and see, see what I can make of it. And starting the list was a much bigger uh, example of that or starting the business in general. I thought I was late. You know, I, in like 2012, I still, it's funny to look back on it now and think about how, you know, insanely early it was. The but, landscape in 2012, like for those of us who don't remember what was going on with blogs. Yeah. I mean, I, I was young. I was in my early twenties and I was in graduate school and sort of the big A-list bloggers that I was looking at at that time were Leo Babauta, who still runs Zen Habits, uh, Chris Gillibo at the Art of Nonconformity. And then there was a, I was really into photography and still, still am. Um, and uh, there was a travel photographer named Trey Ratcliffe who had a really big audience. And so those were the three people that I kind of was looking at around that time and was like, wow, you know, like these guys are making a good living and have these big audiences. I wonder if I could try this. But it's so many people were starting blogs then. Um, and social media was really early and different then. Um, you know, like now, I think if you were in your early 20s, you probably are like, oh, I'd want to be a YouTuber or an Instagram or a TikTok star or something like that. Um, so the amount of energy that is in like YouTube or Instagram or TikTok right now, that's kind of how it felt more so for blogs at the time. And because so many people were starting, honestly, I bet you, I bet there are a lot of people out there who feel this way about YouTube. They're like, what am I going to start a channel about? There's already a bazillion channels. Like everything's already out there. So what it, that's what it feels like. It's not true, but that's, that's how you feel. So I, that's kind of where I was and what I was struggling with. And the other funny thing I remember about that is, I would read a couple articles from, you know, these different people I was following. And occasionally I'd read one and be like, that was, that was okay. Like, I feel like I could do that. I feel like I could do it as well as they are. 
And then I sat down and tried to write my first one. And I was like, this is way harder than I thought. Like, it's actually very hard to come up with good ideas and to share something useful. And so um, there was this gap between it's the same thing. Ira Glass always talks about that famous quote from memories, like your taste and your skill are not, you know, there's like a gap between those. I definitely was experiencing that early on. Like I felt like I had taste. I could know I could tell what was good, but uh, I didn't have the skill yet. And so it took me many years of trying to, to improve that. To, to close that gap. Um, I, I kind of have felt similarly in starting the profile, but when you're in the beginning stages of just reading other people's work that you admire, did you ever fall into the trap of trying to sound like them or write like them? How did you find your voice? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think I don't know that there is any way to really get around that early on. I think pretty much every artist, um, you know, copies is inspired by replicates, reverse engineers, whatever you want to call it. Um, other people, the best strategy I've found is to just don't do it with one person, do it with many. And so then you can start to, it's you're the, um, your conglomeration, um, that you put together is going to be unique to you and your taste and what you're interested in. The other thing is the longer you stick with it, the more that you start to develop your own style and taste. And I would say for me, it took at least six months of writing two articles a week uh, for me to start to get a feel for my voice. And it was probably more like a year to a year and a half before I really had an idea of like, okay, this is my style. This is like the, like, what does it mean for it to be a James? Whoops. uh, What does it mean for it to be a James clear article? That probably took me yeah, a year, year and a half. Um, there's an article, uh, that I, I wrote about, there's a speech this guy gave, um, and he calls it the Helsinki bus station theory and he's from Finland. And the story is that if you go to the bus station in Helsinki, the buses will, will leave and you can get on whatever one you want. And it's a metaphor for your creative career. And when you get to the first stop, people will say, Oh, you know, we've already had a bus stop by here earlier today. And then you go to the second stop and they're like, no, we've already had a bus before. And like, nobody gets on and the third and the fourth and so on. But eventually the bus lines start to splinter and go off into their own directions. And if you stick with it for long enough and you get to enough stops, you show up and people say, actually, a bus hasn't made it out here before. Mm. And his argument is that, you know, for most of your early career, it's like, oh, I know what you're doing. That's that's like that other guy or this is what she did previously or whatever. And they just feel like you're kind of doing something that's already been done before or building upon work that's already been popularized by somebody else. But if you stick with it long enough, his argument is you regain the whole line. So not only do you find your unique voice, people also suddenly, because you're doing something interesting and unique and have your own style, they're like, how did you get here? And so now all of your old work is much more interesting than it was before. Um, and you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I do like the idea of you have to like show up long enough to kind of develop your voice and style. And I definitely felt that in my own kind of creative career. So when you first started writing, I'm guessing the audience wasn't that big. Um, same with me, obviously, like in the beginning, I think there were, you know, 10 people, uh, that I knew all 10, but I think it takes a certain type of intrinsic motivation to keep being consistent when you don't have an audience yet. Um, and I think a lot of people will kind of quit at that point. What would you say about, you know, just, just waiting, uh, for a little bit of time while, uh, you're still building the audience and developing your voice. Cause it does get better. And that's when more people subscribe, but like, how do you get through that trough? Yeah, I can remember early on. So, I mean, I started with zero subscribers, so, you know, I didn't have anybody. Um, I picked a cadence that I felt like I could stick to and that I was excited about. So I published every Monday and Thursday and I usually spent, I would say the average article I spent probably 20 hours on, uh, the shortest, I think I ever did one in was eight hours. Um, the longest was probably more like 40 or 60, somewhere around there, but I didn't usually write stuff that long. So basically, you know, if I was writing two a week and they were taking 20 hours a piece, that was kind of my 40 hour work week. And then the rest of the time was spent marketing, reaching out to people, trying to build relationships, all that kind of stuff. So I, I wrote, I think I had three articles written before I launched the site. 
So those went up the first three, um, you know, Monday, Thursday, and then the next Monday. And then once I had those up, um, I started reaching out to other outlets and asking if they wanted to republish some of them, if they were like relevant. And Lifehacker, I think, was the first site that republished something I wrote. And it, it happened within the first two months or so. I think I had like maybe eight articles out when they republished something. And my only caveat to them was like, hey, you can do this for free, but I have to have a link back to my site in the article and at the end. And so I think I got like 300 subscribers or something from that. And so that was enough. Like I had to make it through the first eight weeks. But once I got 300, then I felt like, hey, now I'm writing for people. <laughs> like now I actually have somebody that, you know, that's paying attention. And I can remember in those first few months when I would send out an article, I would, you know, you wouldn't hear very much back, but I would maybe get like one person who would reply and say, hey, that was really helpful. Or I really like this part or whatever. And that one piece of feedback was enough to get me to feel like, all right, I can go write the next one now. Um, and then, of course, if you stick with it, then it starts to compound and pretty soon you're getting 10 or 100 people or whatever. And then it's way, way easier because, you know, you're getting so much feedback. And now probably I get too much feedback. I'm like, actually, I need to tune this out and just focus yeah. on writing. But um, yeah, in those early days, finding little wins or something that can keep you motivated is really crucial. For me, I think like one person tweeting about the profile would make my whole month. Yeah. Keep me going. <laughs> no, for sure. If you can get one person who feels like a fan or who genuinely appreciates it, then you're like, okay, you know, like I, it's making a difference. I can stick with it again. Yes. And the other thing that you have to remind yourself, which is easy to say, but hard to remember is that, you know, even now when I say like, oh, I'm receiving all this feedback or these tweets or, you know, replies to emails or whatever, I'm only hearing about half a percent, one percent of it. Like most people don't reply. Most people don't leave comments. So, you know, the work that you're doing is making a much bigger impact than you see. Unfortunately, kind of the nature of the internet, I mean, the benefit is you have like essentially infinite scale. The downside is they're all strangers and you're never going to hear from them. Um, and so you're reaching a lot of people and you're making a big difference. It's just that uh, a lot of the time your reward is silence. Right. Um, can I ask why you chose, I guess, from the very beginning to start it under your own name instead of a brand? That was actually, a, it's a good question. It was a much bigger question back then. I feel like now, partially because social media is so prevalent and everybody's used to having profiles under their own name, yeah. it's more typical for people. It's just more understandable for people to like have their online persona. It was less common then. And in particular, starting a blog, it was a very kind of hot topic at the time to start it with a brand of some sort. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried. Uh, I've had like a spreadsheet of I probably could find it somewhere in, uh, in my documents. I have it of like I think I tried to brainstorm like 300 different names. The one the only one I can remember that was kind of like among my finalists was becoming better. I thought about like trying to buy becoming and run it under that. Um, but I sent um, I sent my top 10 list to a couple friends or other people that, you know, were, were writing. And essentially, the feedback was very lukewarm and people were like, none of these are really that great. And so ultimately, I just decided, you know what? If Seth, if Seth Godin's name is good enough for him and Oprah's name is good enough for her, I'll just start with my name and I'll figure it out later. And uh, I'm still largely figuring it out later. But looking back, one thing that I think I benefited from that I didn't, I don't know that I can give myself credit for being fully strategic about it, is that writing under your name gives you a ton of flexibility. I can write about whatever I want, you know, like, and so that's been really nice as time has gone on because I didn't start out saying I'm definitely writing about habits. Right. Um, I kind of discovered that over the first, you know, six months or a year, I knew I was going to write something about it. I just didn't know it was going to be the main topic. So, um, yeah, that because the brand was flexible, uh, I didn't feel like I had boxed myself in, which was kind of nice. Do you ever see yourself, uh, writing about something totally different than habits? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, you know, now I feel like Atomic Habits is my habits book. Like I'm not going to be writing a dozen books on habits or anything like I that's that's basically everything I have to say about it. Um, so 
you know, I'm already thinking about different topics for a second book or, you know, transitioning more into things that like play nicely with habits. And honestly, like I have already written about a variety of stuff like that. Like the nice thing about habits is that it's the Venn diagram between that and other topics is very broad. So the overlap between habits and other topics is very broad. And so I can go into creativity. I can go into decision-making. I can go into focus and attention. Um, there are some topics that, uh, uh, like I probably am not going to be writing about politics. Um, it, relationships is an interesting one. I haven't really written about relationships that much, uh, but I could see there being some interest in something like that. So I don't know. Anyway, point being, I'm glad that I have the flexibility. I don't know exactly what I'm going to write about in five years or 10 years, and I'll be a different person in five years or 10 years. And so I'm glad that I have the option to move in a different direction if I want to. It's cool how your craft kind of evolves with you and your experiences in life. Um, so I remember when we spoke uh, last time, I think it was last year, maybe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Um, and you told me something that kind of stuck with me. Um, and I, I always think about it uh, when I'm trying to get new ideas. Can you tell me, so, so what you said to me was my writing always suffers if I haven't read enough that week or that, mm. or that period of time. Tell me about how that relates to idea generation for you. Yeah, that's a good line. I should keep that in mind. <laughs> um, I, I, um, <clears throat> I find that for myself, I can't speak for everybody else, but for myself, um, almost every thought that I have is downstream from what I consume. And so if you're consuming better things, if you have better inputs, you often just naturally get better outputs. The other way that I like to think about it is, um, you know, everybody wants to be original. I, I would love to be brilliant and original and a genius, but I frankly, I'm not smart enough for that. Like I don't have enough of these good ideas that just bubble up naturally without me building on something else. And so if I am going to be building upon or kind of uh, iterating upon previous stuff, then I want to start with the I want the best starting material possible, basically. Um, and so by having good starting material, I often can build something that looks kind of nice and is useful and interesting and valuable. Um, but it's largely because I started by reading something useful, interesting and valuable. So. I think what picking what to read and in my case, making sure that I'm reading consistently is a really important part of my writing process and idea generating process. How do you balance the, the consumption with the production with the like, does it still take you 20 hours to write an article? Yeah, it, I mean, it's that's an important question. And I don't I think you're going to get a lot of it wrong. I've made a mistake a lot of the time. And usually honestly, I end up finding that I'm kind of oscillating in one way or another. It's like, oh, I kind of have been writing and writing and writing. And it's like, man, I just feel like I'm tapped out. And it's like, you need to take a break and read a little bit. Um, or it's easy to get locked in that like research and consumption phase where you're like, oh, I'm getting ready to do the work. I'm getting, I'm doing research. This is important, but it's like, you're not shipping anything. Yeah. And so uh, you're kind of constantly bouncing back and forth there. The, um, the example that I heard many years ago, I can't even remember where I initially heard it, but I, I've always liked it is it's kind of like driving a car, you know, like yeah. if you drive a car down the road and you run out of gas, then you're not going to get anywhere. And so you have to go to the tank. You have to go to the gas station, fill up. Right. But the point of having a car is not to just sit at the gas station, and fill up all day. Um, like you need to do both. And so for me, reading is like filling up the tank and writing is like kind of going on an adventure and driving somewhere. And I need, I need both of those if you actually want to make the journey. Um, I, I've talked about this a lot recently and, you know, it's everywhere. People refer to it as a content diet, information diet, like basically what you are consuming is kind of what you're putting out into the world. Um, what does your content diet look like? Yeah, um, I think the most effective things I've found are to try to automate the uh, streams of information that are coming into you. So Twitter is a good example. Um, you know, I have spent what honestly most people would probably consider to be an unreasonable amount of time figuring out who to follow on Twitter. Um, I'm easily have spent over 100 hours on it. Um, I don't know how much I've actually spent, but it's easily over that. And what ends up happening, and this is something I don't know that people fully appreciate, is that when you choose who to follow on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, 
you're choosing your future thoughts in a sense. Um, you're choosing what that information stream is. And so you're already locking yourself into certain types of thoughts. Now, you don't know exactly what those people are going to share, but you know, you generally have a good idea of what their themes are and what their topics are and kind of how they think about things and how sharp they view the how sharply they view the world and how clearly they observe the world. And so if you can do a good job of selecting the right people to follow, you essentially automate good thoughts coming into your mind. Every time you're scrolling through, you're getting all kinds of stuff. I can't go on Twitter now and not come out with like three or four or five ideas. Um, I basically am constantly, you know, just like kind of dumping things into my big pile of uh, ideas to work upon. So that's one thing I would say social media plays a much bigger role for my information consumption than it used to, uh, but it only works because it's heavily curated. Um, obviously books, I, you can't see this next to me, but I have more books that I'm reading next to me. What's it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I have 17 books on my desk. I'm not reading 17 books, but they're, <laughs> but they're there. Um, and the, actually that is another good example. I think of for my physical environment, I try to sprinkle good sources of information around the environment. You know, like I've got these books sitting next to me. I have some next to my bed. I have some on the coffee table in the living room. I'm never far from a good idea. And most of them aren't mine, but they're always there for me to build upon and soak up and think about and iterate on. So um, that's kind of how I, I think about optimizing my environment for having good ideas. I love that. Um, something I do sometimes is when I'm really, really struggling for ideas, I just go over and pull a book and just open it to a random page and start reading and that'll spark an idea. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a great point. Um, so, okay. Speaking of books, I bought your book for pretty much every single person in my life, um, including (laughs) my family in Bulgaria. And I bought it in Bulgarian because I freaked out when I saw it on the shelf. I love Um, it. I'm so happy that that's an option that there's a Bulgarian version. You remember when I sent it to you and uh, the letter J is very complicated in uh, Bulgarian. So it took up the, the name James took up so much space. Um, but my question is in, in terms of the book atomic habits, why did you decide to write a book? It was kind of a natural evolution. Honestly, I never set out to do it. Um, like if you were to talk to any of my teachers, English teachers in high school or professors in college or whatever, I took one English class in college. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. Um, and if you talk to any of those teachers, they'd have been like, he was fine. B plus like he'd like they, they, none of them would have been like, he'll definitely be an author. Um, so I think, um, you know, I started writing because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I had these products and I would launch them and nobody cared. And I realized the problem is that I don't have an audience. I don't have anybody to market to. I don't have anybody to tell about this. And so um, I started writing a blog to build an email list because I was like, if I want to be an entrepreneur, I need to have an audience of people who I can go to when I'm ready to sell the next product. Yeah. And this funny thing happened, which is the more that I wrote, I found out actually the thing I'm good at is not building these products. It's building an email list. That's the thing I'm good at. And I actually like writing much more than I thought I would. And so that was kind of the first like five years of my career was this discovery of actually I like writing and actually I can build an email list. And that got me to, you know, around like 2014, 2015, I started to, my audience had started to get to the size where people were reaching out to me. And so I had a couple of agents who said, Hey, have you thought about writing a book? Yeah. I heard from a couple of publishers who were like, Hey, are you interested in writing a book at some point? And once I heard from, you know, three or four or five of those people, I was like, okay, that's enough signal that like, maybe I should consider this. Uh, maybe this is like kind of the natural next step. So Late 2015, November of 2015, um, I signed the book deal for Atomic Habits. Um, so, you know, I was writing for three years before um, before that happened. And I was an entrepreneur for five years before that happened. So it took me a while to figure out that that's what I was going to do. Um, but now, now that I'm on the other side of it, I've tried a bunch of other things. I've tried online courses, tried speaking, consulting, whatever, but, you know, a bunch of different stuff and um, some physical products. And 
the book is the thing that is the best for my personality. It's the, it's the one product I've had where I'm like, this feels the most like me. Like, I love that it's a low price point. I love that it's accessible to pretty much anyone. I love that it's in multiple formats. If you don't like to read, you can listen to the audiobook. Um, I love that it's like all of my best ideas in one place. And it's really easy where it's like, Hey, what should I do? Where should I start? And it's just like, read this. Um, and I like, I like sharing it. I like, um, telling people about it, hearing how it impacts people and it can scale essentially infinitely. So it took me a long time to get to that. But now that I'm here, I feel like, Oh yeah, I finally found the thing that's right for me. That's so cool. Um, so I was recently on Twitter and I saw that, um, one guy shared a photo and thanked you because as a result of reading the book, he, he went out and got into really great shape. So I'm guessing that you get a lot of really interesting emails from people who are deeply touched by the book. What is, if you had to think about the craziest habit you've seen somebody change as a result of the book? Hmm. That's interesting. I bet we could come up with some really wild ones. There's so many emails that I'm sure if we went through, we'd find some funny it's ones. Like a list. I actually, this is not the answer to your question, but I just thought of it. So I have to share this. So, you know, anybody who has an email list online gets all kinds of crazy replies from people. And um, I wrote an article. There, there's a concept in finance called lifestyle creep, you know, like you increase your salary. And so then all of a sudden you buy a fancier car, you upgrade your house or whatever. And so your lifestyle creeps up as you're making more money. And uh, the argument is usually, well, you want to avoid that um, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote an article about how the, we kind of have that natural tendency to creep along and gradually expand. And what if we applied that same kind of thinking to habits? And so we have like habit creep and we kind of gradually expand them or whatever. And so the article just was like it, the title was something like habit creep, how to, you know, gradually expand your habits or whatever. And somebody just replied to that email and just said, you're the habit creep send. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I was thinking about it. It just cracks me up. So anyway, um, yeah, there are all kinds of habits that people have changed. Fitness and weight loss is the most common one that we hear about. Some other ones that I'm really proud of are the ones that I hear from people. And this is not what I wrote the book for. I didn't write it for like addiction or for alcoholism or dealing with that. But I've heard from quite a few people who've been able to use it for those habits. Like one woman who, you know, she was essentially addicted to wine and was drinking it every night. And the book helped her scale that down to one day a week. And then eventually, I think she just kind of cut it out entirely. And that idea, even just scaling it down to one day a week, it, to talk to a lot of people who are addicted to any substance, the idea of doing it in moderation um, seems almost impossible. And again, I don't consider myself an expert on addiction, and it's not what the book is about. But a lot of the concepts apply. And um, that's probably been one of the coolest things for me is to see how broadly the concepts can be used, you know, like they can be used for fitness, they can be used for addiction. Um, you know, I have the principals of school districts who have all their teachers read it. Um, sometimes I laugh about like where the book has taken me on the, during the same week, I was on a health and fitness podcast where I was in my underwear in a sauna with the guy, um, interviewing and talking about the book. And then like two days later, I was on CBS this morning in like a full suit and tie talking about it. And I think that just speaks to how widely habits are applicable in life and to, you know, how broadly they can be, the ideas can be utilized. So I don't know that I have one craziest story, but it's definitely been used in a lot of different ways. And that's very fun for me to see. So that's really interesting that you talk about addiction because um, I, and, and this is totally kind of unrelated, but um, I remember when I was at Fortune and I was working on these like big magazine stories and I needed something. I was, I was constantly looking for ways to just like write better and be better. Um, and I had convinced myself for a while that having a glass of wine when I'm uh, writing, like made my writing better and made me mm. a better writer. And thank God I had read Atomic Habits because I, you can tell how quickly that can get out of hand because it's like sure. you associate a, like a alcohol with performance, yep. you kind of, you create a habit in a way. So my question is like, what is the difference between habits and addiction? And are they kind of intertwined? Yeah. I mean, they definitely are entwined. I think, you know, I don't know that actual addiction experts would describe it this way, but the way I think about it in my brain is you got like a spectrum 
And on one side, you have a behavior that you do say one time. So that's not a habit. That's just a behavior. And then the more that you repeat it, you start to move down the spectrum. And then eventually you get to this place where it's more or less automatic. So we'll call that a habit. Um, And then at the very extreme end, even past that, you have something which is like an addiction, which not only do you repeat it consistently, but when you're in the habit zone, your brain is still learning. So if you do something and it doesn't get you the response that you want, it doesn't get the outcome that you want, you'll learn to do something differently. So like, let's take uh, like something really common, like pressing the remote control. Mm -hmm. If you press the power button, that's basically a habit at some point for most people. Like you don't, you're not thinking carefully, not looking, is this exactly the right thing to do? You know, like you're just, you know exactly what to do. You do it on autopilot. Yeah. Now let's say the batteries are kind of dead and you press the button and it doesn't work. Well, you press it three or four times and then you're like, something's wrong with this thing. So you, you still learn. You don't keep doing it again and again, even though it's not getting the result you want. With addiction, though, the feedback loop is broken somehow. So even you know that it doesn't serve you, but you still repeat it. It's like you keep pressing the remote control, even though it's not turning on the TV. Hmm. And that's a lot of what the you know addiction is like. People are like, I know drinking ruins my life, but I still can't stop. I know that taking these drugs you know, isn't good for me or that it wrecks my relationships with my family, but I still have to do it. And so um, I would describe that as the difference between habit and addiction. Um, in the case of a habit, if it doesn't, if it stops serving you, you can stop doing it or you change your behavior. In the case of an addiction, it stops serving you, but you still feel the urge to, to do it. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, in, in going off of that, uh, two years ago, you wrote uh, a guest post for the profile. And in it, you wrote, um, basically, the idea was how do you turn your New Year's resolution into an actual and make it an actual uh, habit? So you wrote, take whatever goal you're trying to accomplish and ask yourself, who is the type of person that could achieve that goal? So why is identity so important and so intertwined to our uh, habits? Yeah. I think true behavior change is really identity change. And what I mean by that is if you look at yourself in a certain way, you're not really trying to change your behavior anymore. You know, like, um, uh, you know, the, the goal is not to like run a marathon. The goal is to look at yourself, consider yourself to be a runner, you know, or the goal is not to like do a silent meditation retreat. It's to see yourself as a meditator. And so the more that you start to adopt that identity, I'm a runner, I'm a writer, I'm a meditator, you know, whatever. And it doesn't have to be labels like that. It can be a phrase, you know, it could be like, I'm the type of person who finishes what they start, or I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, or I'm the type of person who's reliable and shows up to meetings on time or whatever it is. And once you start to fully believe in that identity, the behavior follows more or less naturally. It's like, well, this is just what a person like me does. You know, like you're not trying to be someone you're not, you're just acting in alignment with who you already see yourself to be. And I view behavior and beliefs as like a two-way street, you know, so what you believe about yourself will influence the way you act. But the wonderful thing, and this is where it ties back to habits, is that the way you act will also influence what you believe about yourself. Hmm. And so I feel like the best method we have, the best lever you can pull is to let the behavior lead the way to start with one small habit and let that provide evidence of being a certain type of person. You know, it's kind of like every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so, you know, no, doing one push up does not radically transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And that stuff matters, you know, it adds up in the long run. And the more that you cast those votes for this certain type of identity, you do it once or twice or three times, it doesn't radically change things. But if you keep showing up and casting votes, eventually you build up this like body of evidence, you know, and you like shift the weight of the scales in favor of this new identity or this new person. Um, You essentially give weight to the story. And that that new story is something that you hold on to and tell to yourself. And, you know, you're like, yeah, actually, I do live by that narrative. And it's much easier for me to stick with this now. So I feel like ultimately, you know, it sounds a little foo-foo or like, you know, traditional kind of self-help. But ultimately, the process of changing your habits is really the process of like rewriting your story. Uh, you know, it's learning to get you to believe something new about yourself. 
And once you believe that, you don't really have to convince yourself to do it anymore. You're just acting in alignment. And, and, and so I want to uh, emphasize that it's a little different what you're saying from the positive thinking, like um, imposter syndrome, like you, you just have to believe that you're right. the type of person. This is like, I think so. I, I think it's different than, you know, the common thing that everybody says is fake it till you make it. Right. But I, I think it's different than fake it till you make it, you know, fake it till you make it is asking you to believe something positive about yourself, which is fine. I don't necessarily have anything wrong with that, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion, right? Like your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you're saying about yourself and what you're actually doing. And so, you know, my argument is, look, doing one push-up doesn't change things overnight, but you cannot deny that in that moment, you were the kind of person who didn't miss workouts. And so it gives you something very tangible to hold on to, which I think is different than fake it till you make it or, you know, trying to think positive or whatever. And I think the beauty of this is that you can actually hold multiple identities and beliefs about yourself. Because for example, when I started doing the profile full time, suddenly I'm an entrepreneur, but until Mm. the day before I was a writer and I don't know, I I had a really hard time transitioning from writer to now I'm going to introduce myself to as an entrepreneur, but the more you do it, I think you can have both do you how do you identify yourself yeah no that's that's a really good point i mean i you know now i think of myself as an author but it it really honestly it wasn't until atomic habits was actually published and i like actually had the physical book i was like well i guess i have to admit it now like the the book is here so um you know i experienced this a lot I've, i played baseball through college and you know so my whole career from the very first time i picked up a baseball 17 years of playing and so being an athlete was a big part of my identity. And when I stopped playing, I felt like I had lost something that was really important to me. And I think you hear that from a lot of athletes. You also hear it from people. Another interesting one that I came across people in the military, you know, like for your whole time that you're, you serve your identity is I'm a soldier. And then all of a sudden you leave and you're like, well, am I a soldier or not? And I think that um, there is a, a little nuanced piece to this identity conversation, which is, it's really nice to be able to choose a version of your identity that uh, can transcend context. So, you know, if you if you only say I'm a soldier, then sure, once you are done serving, then I guess, you know, that part of you is not exactly the same. But if you pick the qualities of a soldier, if you say I'm a good teammate, I'm reliable, I finish my mission, I do what I'm told, you know, like you pick whatever those qualities are then you can translate that to any job, you know, like you can take that into the corporate workplace. You can take that into your life as an entrepreneur or whatever. And so I think it's finding the qualities uh, that you feel like speak to you and that you can also take with you from place to place and not just a label that, you know, you live by for some set period of time. That's so good. And uh, I, I want to ask one more follow-up question here, but I've, I've been thinking a lot recently about the power of labels and not just the way you label yourself, but the way other people label you. So classic example, you're growing up and your teachers are like, he's not that bright. You grow up thinking you're not that bright. So how important is the labels that other people slap on us to our identity? And how can we kind of counteract that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I thought a lot about habits and identity when I was writing the book. And, you know, so that's mostly on the individual side, you think about how do we influence our own identities with the behaviors we take and so on. But what you just mentioned is something that I, I started to realize as I was trying to unpack it more, which is, well, the social context influences your identity too. You know, like just imagine you're in second grade and you're, you know, fourth grade or whatever, and you're talking with a group of friends and you can sort of go around the group and figure out like, oh, okay, uh, she's the smart one and he's the funny one and she's the pretty one. And what does that make me? You know, like you, you start to triangulate your identity based on the people around you. And um, I think one thing that's important to remember is that we can change based on the room that we're in, you know, like if you take me to a dinner with a bunch of people who are just starting out building their websites or as entrepreneurs, then they look at me as some like seasoned entrepreneur. If I go to a different dinner and walk in and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are there, then like, I feel like a total idiot and I haven't done anything, you know? And so if we change based on the people that we're around and your identity can shift in that social context as well. So, um, I think, 
probably the practical takeaways like there's well first of all there's no way to get around that you can't just like uh undo the way the world works and not compare yourself to other people or not realize the differences between you and other people or whatever so it's going to happen but i think realizing that one you can influence your identity with your habits and behaviors so that gives you a possible lever to tell yourself a better story than the you're not so bright story um two and this is increasingly true the older you get and as you come into adulthood you also get to choose who you hang around and so you can influence that um that peer group and that will radically uh change things and then three and i think this is um something you can apply to a lot of life not just relationships but it doesn't have to be a competition it can also be a collaboration Hmm. and so a lot of this discussion we've had so far about identity and social groups is comparing you to someone else. Oh, what do they have that I don't, or am I not as good as them in some quality or whatever? But instead I would say, and this is particularly uh, helpful for entrepreneurs, or I've found it helpful through my entrepreneurial career. Forget about the comparison and try to find peers uh, that you can connect with and collaborate with and rise together. Um, And the more that you can join those groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior, um, it starts to become this very powerful kind of uh, like rising tide and you all can, can, um, you know, succeed uh, side by side rather than in conflict. I love that. Um, And you recently tweeted something along those lines where you said, reinvent yourself, time erodes, every advantage, evolve or die. Um, What's one way that you have evolved your brand in yourself in the last 10 years? Yeah. I mean, there are tons like, you know, there are small ones from strategies that you used to use. Like there was a two year window where I got a lot of traffic from Quora. Um, And so I was, you know, using that site a lot and uh, that has dried up and I don't get really any traffic from Quora now. So we had to move on and you got to find like a different way to, you know, drive readers to the website and so on. Um, And so there are all kinds of marketing strategies and examples like that. Um, There are. evolutions in how I think about, uh, the business and how I run it. Like for the first three or four years, let's see how long was it for the first four years. Uh, it was just me. And, um, I was very resistant to hiring anybody. I wanted to make sure that I touched everything. It was probably like, you know, a little bit of like superhero syndrome and trying to do it all yourself. Um, and then, you know, now I have one full-time employee uh, and she's been with me since, you know, for the last four years. Um, and so that's been a, a shift in like a reinvention. I went from being this solo guy to being a manager. Um, now we still have, you know, a very small team, just the two of us, but, um, you know, so there are all kinds of little shifts that, that require you to, um, or there are all kinds of changes that require you to, to shift the way that you think about yourself and the way that you do things. That's why I view entrepreneurship as like a personal growth engine in disguise. You know, everybody thinks it's about building a business. They think it's about making money or reaching, serving customers. But if you talk to any entrepreneur, you realize how much they learn about themselves through the process. Um, You know, like there's nowhere to hide your flaws because they influence the business in every way. So you have to either address them or the business gets wrecked because of them. And so in that sense, it's like this very painful teacher, but, um, you're forced to have the hard conversations either with yourself or with your team. And I think that's a really good source of evolution and growth. That's so good. I, um, one thing that I recognized about myself that was painfully clear when I started working on the profile full time is that I worry a lot, but I worry about things that maybe like most people don't worry about. And I recognize that that's a habit But my question to you is, how do you advise people to break more nebulous habits like worry, like the mental ones, uh, where it's not as clean cut as like either I'm smoking or I'm not smoking? Um, Like, do you have any strategies for that? This is something that I didn't think of that clearly when I was writing the book. And it's come up in conversations and Q&A sessions and speaking events and stuff since it's come out. The way that I think about it now is I would put habits into two buckets. You got habits of thought and habits of action Mm -hmm. and habits of action are all the things that like you just mentioned, you know, eating a donut or smoking a cigarette or doing a push up. It could be good or bad, but like a physical thing happens. Yeah. And then habits of thought are like negative self-talk and worry and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I have written primarily about habits of action and man, habits of thought are so hard to change. Um, 
part of the problem is that they are almost instantaneous. Like with a habit of action, there is actually technically a space between, you know, seeing the cookie on the counter and taking a bite of it. And so there's somewhere where you can intervene. But if somebody says something cutting in conversation and then you immediately start negative self-talk in your head, there's essentially no space between that, uh, you know, between the statement and your thought. And so it's very hard to correct something when there's no place to intervene. It's just instantaneous. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot and trying to come up with good solutions. I don't know that I have any, but the the best thing that I've thought of so far, and I'm just trying to collect a list of these, what I would call essentially mindset shifts. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I think about it is, imagine that your thoughts are like a uh, the lens of a pair of glasses. And so let's say right now you have the blue glasses on. Okay. And when somebody says that statement in conversation, says that cutting remark, instantly it's blue because that's just how you're seeing the world. Like you can't change that. And so in order to change your response, you need to put on a different set of glasses. You need to put on the yellow glasses, the red glasses or whatever. And I think the only way to do that, what I'm basically describing is the reason you're seeing the world in a blue tint right now is because that's the mindset that you have. That's like the way that you view the world is the perspective you have. People talk about this in different ways. Some people call them mental models. Some people call them, you know, what concepts, whatever. But we see we ha we all have a worldview and every experience in your life is run through your worldview. It's run through that set of lenses that you have. And so like one example that I like is, you know, um, you could talk about your daily routine. You could say, you know, I have to get up. I have to take my kid to work, uh, to school at 8 AM. I have to do my workout. I have to send a report to my boss at 2 PM or whatever. Or you could say, I get to wake up. I get to take my kid to school. I get to do a workout. I get to send the report in at 2 PM. And there's only a one word difference between have to and get to, but it changes your perspective. Suddenly everything that you were previously seeing as an obligation, now you see as an opportunity. And so I think that's an example of switching the lenses that you're wearing. You go from the blue lens to the yellow lens or whatever. And so I'm trying to collect a list of examples of mindset shifts like that. Little things that you can do that shift your worldview so that you instantly view the same experience in a different light. And, um, I don't know how easy that is to do. Probably not very easy at all, but it's thoughts are just so quick that I don't know any other way to, to try to intervene. That's so good. I also, I also do think to circle back on our conversation about the content diet, I've noticed a shift in myself when I watch certain types of shows or things, how the things that I think about and the, the perspective that I have on the world kind of changes versus if I'm reading something else, uh, I start looking at it through that lens. Like it's that impactful. Um, that's really cool. Okay. So my last question for you is you talk about the importance of environment when you're trying to make a habit change. Obviously last year and into this year, a lot of us are constrained to like where we live or our apartment or our home. So can you give us three ways that we can form better habits, even if we can't change necessarily geographically our environment? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I think environment design is really powerful. Uh, you know, that same kind of idea that I mentioned earlier, where I said pretty much everything you think is downstream from what you consume. It also applies to your behavior. Many of the things you do are downstream from the environment you find yourself in. Hmm. And so, um, you know, the first thing that you can do, you ask for three tips. So I'll try to give you three. So the first thing you can do yeah. is you, you can make the, <laughs> okay. Um, you can make things as obvious as possible. Usually we act on the things that we see. And so, you know, if the snacks are on the counter in the kitchen, then you're probably going to grab those. If they're tucked away in the bottom corner of the pantry and you have apples on the counter, maybe you're more likely to grab the apple just because it's there. I actually have seen this with my own uh, eating habits a little bit. Like if I buy beer, if I buy a six pack of beer and I put it in like the front of the fridge or on a shelf, that's like really easy to, to see. I'll grab one and have it at dinner each night just because it's there. But if I put it like on the lowest shelf and all the way in the back corner, I got to like bend down to see it. Sometimes I'll forget it's there for like a week. You know, it's like, did I want it or not? Like on the one hand, I wanted it bad enough to grab it whenever it was around me. But on the other hand, I never remembered to get it. So a lot of our behaviors are like that. Um, one that's not food related. 
I've tried to leave my phone. This is like a habit I've been sticking to for the last, I don't know, I'd say probably year and a half. Um, leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. Wow. And it gives me like a four hour block where I can just focus on work. And same story. You know, if it's next to me, if it's on the desk, I'm like everybody else. I'll check it every three minutes. But if it's in another room, you know, I have a home office. It's only 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And so I'm like, well, did I want it or not? And it's remarkable how many habits will kind of fade in that in that sense uh, if you design the environment to make them less obvious. So that's the first thing. Um, second thing is you can increase the amount of friction that it takes for you to do the task. So let's say, you know, like you said, COVID, everybody's sitting at home during the pandemic. Um, maybe it's really easy for you to turn on TV and you're wasting more time watching TV than you were working previously. Well, if at the end of each day, before you go to bed, you just unplug the TV uh, and go upstairs, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, do your routine, get started on the workday. Well, the only thing that you have to do is plug the television back in. But that's probably enough friction for you to be like, do I really want to do this or should I be working right now? And so just by adding a little bit more friction, adding an additional step between you and the bad habit, um, it's less likely you slide into it and more likely that you stick to the good thing. So the punchline with friction is very simple. It's just reduce the number of steps between you and your good habits and increase the number of steps between you and your bad habits. Um, okay. So. So first one's make it obvious. Second one is uh, make it easy um, and kind of reduce friction. And then I would say the third thing that you can do uh, to optimize your environment is to try to find um, the version of a habit that excites you. So you try to find something that is like more attractive for you to do and then use those two first two strategies I talked about, obvious and easy, um, to uh, make that as, as visible as possible. So let me give you an example. A lot of people feel like they should be working out more. They want to get fit, whatever. But not everybody has to train like a bodybuilder. Like you don't have to lift weights. There are many different forms of fitness. You could do body weight stuff. You could go for a walk. You go for a run. You could rock climb, kayak, whatever. Take whatever it is that excites you. Find the version of a habit that excites you and then optimize your environment around that. So then you'll have kind of this natural motivation and you'll have the environment working for you. Um, so anyway, those are a couple of different uh, ideas that you could take and implement. I love that. Okay, and this is the final question, I promise. Uh, <laughs> but because this is the profile, is there a biography or a memoir that you've read that you think somebody who's, who wants to form better habits should read um, to learn from that person? Hmm. Um. Interesting question about the habits part of it. When you said, is there a, I thought you were gonna say, is there a biography you've read that you love? And I was going to say, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. I love that book. Oh, it's yeah. just hilarious. Um, but, uh, the biography of Andrew Carnegie and Rockefeller's biography are both really interesting in terms of habits and systems. You know, a lot of, we've used the word habits throughout this conversation, but a lot of the way that I think about habits is focused around systems and building good systems. And um, both of them are examples of that in a business context. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to be learned with the way that they made decisions, the way they designed systems in their businesses that could still be applied to either the work you're doing or your personal life. Amazing. Thank you so much, James. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.